0: Welcome to the show, everyone. We have a very special guest for you today. He has a fifth-degree black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu under Henzel Gracie and John Danher. Welcome to the show, Professor Mike Jaramillo. Hello, sir.
1: How are you, sir? It's nice to be on this. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Oh, thank you so much for taking time to do the show. Uh, yeah, really love what you do. I follow your social media quite a bit. and I like to start with basically kind of like your origins, like your origin story, so to speak, in particularly martial arts and also Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I believe around 1999, you started Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Is that correct? I uh, started in
1: 1998, got my black belt in 2005. In 1998, I actually wanted to join a martial art. Wasn't sure what to do. Didn't know anything about the Gracies. Uh, I think I heard the name one time, and I almost think, I can't even remember if this was the fight, but there was this mixed martial arts, Valley Tudo fight, And I had saw a VHS tape and I think it was Hoyler that fought because the guy was really small and they were kept talking about him. They were like, oh, it's the Gracie's, it's the Gracie's. I think that was probably around 96. That was the first time I ever heard the name. I didn't know who they were. I joined this karate school. It was Sensei Miyazaki's in Queens, New York. I was going there and there was a gentleman. He had been a member at Miyazaki's and had moved to Japan and was not Japanese, but learned fluent Japanese. And I think he still works as a translator. But he started fighting overseas, in Neiwaza, uh, oh. and did, uh, I think it was, it was pancreas or one of them, did about five fights and then had an eye injury and moved back to the States. Sensei Miyazaki had asked him to start a Neiwaza class, which is ground fighting. I didn't know what that meant. I had just joined. I was about to quit. I was there about three months. I didn't know anything at all. I joined the school. I mean, it's kind of a funny story, but I was the only adult in an all kids class. So oh. <laughs> everybody measured up to about my waist. Yes. <laughs> this is really true. I went to class and all the parents on the side, I'm the only adult in class. <laughs> and the sixth day takes his belt off and puts them in a circle, which is a great kids game. But I was the only adult. It's a little bit embarrassing. (laughs) And he spins the belt in a circle and you have to jump over the belt. And then he raises it in higher and brings it up and down. And if it touches you, you're out. And it's a process of elimination. It's just a game for the kids. But I was the only adult jumping. (laughs) And and when I got off the mat, I had only been there about two and a half months. We got off the mat and I was thinking, gosh, this really isn't for me. I don't know why I did this. I went into the locker room. And there was another guy, I actually don't remember the gentleman's name, but he came up to me and his kids was one of the ones in the circle. And he said, uh, man, I've always wanted to join, but there wasn't another adult. Huh. He goes, I'm going to join tomorrow. Can we partner? And I stayed. I stayed because wow. of him. During that time when I was there, it was probably two or three months. I forget the timelines. It's been so long. Sensei Miyazaki came up to me and told me he was going to start a Nawaza class to form a ground fighting. And if I would participate in it. I said, yeah, I definitely, I try it. I'll, I try, it. I really, I'm the type of person to will try anything. Like, you okay. don't, you want to try some different type of food, go somewhere new. I always tell my daughter and any young man or woman that try it. You won't know if you like it if you don't try. And life is about experiences and accumulation of them. So I always tell, like, that's my philosophy on it. So I tried it. And that first class, you know, this is when you don't know anything, you're just getting beat up nonstop. He was the only one that knew something in the room. And there were two more of us. There were three in total. He taught and he taught us for about maybe about three months. And he wanted to compete and was competing somewhere in New Jersey at a school. It was like a high school that they were doing a grappling event at. So I went to support. I made my way to a center of one of the rings. And I saw this guy, his name is George Cernak. He knows this story because uh-huh. I tell him he's the reason I got into it. He owns Henzo Gracie Denville, a longtime BJJ guy, longtime karate guy, lifelong martial artist, big BJJ tattoo on his back. This is how I remember him. Uh-huh. As When I made my way to the center of the ring, he was dominating this guy that was so much bigger than him. And I was just blown away. He was mounted on him and doing anything he wanted to him. And back then, Henzo Gracie's was actually called the Henzo Gracie Cyclones. And I thought to myself, oh, yeah. I wonder who these cyclones are. Because as I waved my way to each individual ring, they were the ones dominating everything. I didn't know who they were. Then I started doing a little bit of research. Internet did not exist. So I know it's hard for young people <laughs> to understand that.
0: Yeah.
1: So I went to the Yellow Pages. I started looking and looking and looking. I Actually, I don't remember ever telling this story, but I looked and looked. And I finally found somebody that was buying Black Belt Magazine and told me about Henzo Gracie. And he said, "Um, this guy's got a school. He's one of those guys, one of the Gracie families. And he's got a school on 38th Street. Back then, if you wanted to look anything up, you had to dial 411. So, yeah, I know it's kind of (laughs) wild. Yeah, back in the day. I know young people are like, what? Yeah, but you'd have to get your home phone and dial 411 and then tell the operator what you're looking for and they could give you the address or the phone number. So they gave me the address and they gave me the phone number. I call that number every day, probably five to six times a day at every hour of the day to try to get somebody to answer. I don't think that was even Henzo's number. Like I was (laughs) making fun of it. He wasn't the best businessman back then. (laughs) And I called and called and called and after about six weeks, I asked my wife on a Friday night if I could, We were gonna go out to dinner in the city and I asked her if we could stop by there. And I just wanted to see if this place really existed. I went in there, we were above a methadone clinic. It was a really, back then that particular clinic and how you got in there was HIV and AIDS was a very prominent thing. And the only way you could be part of that clinic was you had to be homeless and either HIV positive or have full blown AIDS. So it was a really, it was like, you went on that elevator and the elevator stopped on every floor and they occupied the floors below Henzo's. So we were on the fifth floor and they occupied the floors below. So you got on the elevator, I mean, people were shooting up, like, I guess he got an incredible rent. You know, this was so early in the days that, I mean, you know, renting real estate in Manhattan and then trying to do a BJJ school, I imagine was very difficult at the beginning because He's done well for himself now, but in the beginning, everybody doesn't realize the struggle they went through. So I end up going there. I'm a little bit nervous. I'm like, wow, this is like, I mean, everybody's seen people shoot up and people that have addiction problems, like they're in a bad place. So made my way through there, got on the elevator, went upstairs. Elevator door opens, and I look out in this room, and if you ever watch the old, old footage of Henzo rolling, that's that place. It's a small, narrow place, oh. almost has this corrugated steel as the walls. Uh, made my way in there, and I walked out, and it was Magno Gamma and Sean Williams were there. Sean Williams, people know him. He owns Henzo Gracie Nashville, but he also announces, I mean, does the worlds every year, excellent excellent announcer he does adcc mm. like one of the guys that people don't realize the guy that's announcing that's sean williams the other gentleman was magno gamma he has a henzo Gracie story of queens excellent instructor good friend and they welcomed me with open arms i asked if i could sit down and just watch and i did i was just in awe they were moving there was about 20 people in there just moving around and battling. i didn't know who anybody was I waited about 20 minutes. My wife was downstairs in the car. I was hoping she was still alive. <laughs> I make my way downstairs. And she goes, how was it? And I said, uh, I said, man, I think I'm in love. I went back on Monday. And I think I went every possible time that you could go for the next, i mean, literally uh-huh. like 10 years straight. But that's how I started. That's actually, that's how I really started
0: unbelievable yeah everybody's kind of spoiled now you know, just a jiu-jitsu school yeah. like in the main strip mall area or something you know main street yeah. back then far and between, uh, between. <laughs> yeah. but yeah, yeah the other thing is my experience with brazilian jiu-jitsu is you, know, you try your first trial class or week or whatever and it's either right away like this is not for me or where's this been my whole life other martial arts have their addictive quality if you will why do you suppose yeah jujitsu just appeals to so many people like yourself and me and because you teach so much, you see that on the instructor side.
1: And that's a really great question. There's a few different things from it. I always say to people, why do people get addicted to golf? Right? It's just mm. this ball that they're hitting and trying to put in a hole. Yeah. One of the addictions is you can't master it. There's so many variables and and you see Tiger Woods, their days that I mean that young man has been putting hitting that ball every day for how many I mean. Yeah. A few hundred thousand. If you told me he swung that club a several million times, I believe you. And there's days that he can't even hit the ball straight. So that's part of it. I also think that there's a neurological aspect of it. Mm. I volunteer a lot of my time for the We Defy organization. So yes. awesome organization. I try to raise money for them. I just did one on Sunday. And if anybody's ever interested in having me do one, I don't want anything for it. I'll make my way there. We have one goal. And that's to raise $2,500 to put another person in scholarship. We call it scholarship. And what it is, is a one-year tuition at a school that's within 45 minutes of their house. We're in 45 states. I'm a big believer in it. I think that a lot of the freedoms we have are because of the military. And those young men, you know, when they sign up and they go there to represent us and serve us, like, and they come back and they have issues, like, We sometimes forget about them Mm. and those young men when they come back they become fathers their sons their husbands it's important for us to pay it forward and make a difference in their lives because they're raising the next generation so one of the things that i reason i brought up the weedify thing was that when i was at the event we did a like a summit with all the ambassadors and the, the team leadership maybe about two months ago in delaware and uh, they explained to me about the neurological aspect of like most of the people that suffer from PTSD, they have extreme anxiety, depression. One of the things that they experience is the amygdala gland gets so hot from the constant stress of being in battle, the unknown out on the field. Like America's still in a lot of wars. Like these guys are out there, like, you know, they're, whatever they're doing, they're doing. But one of the things that the BJJ does is that as they roll they start to get comfortable that they understand like we can tap, it's okay. And that allows the amygdala gland to like reset. And that heat that it's firing so hard starts to lower. And the front vortex is allowed to start to think again. I also think that for me, I'm only speaking for me, it's a form of meditation. It's this beautiful art, right? And you see it in some other things I see the fact, I'm I'm a person that enjoys observing things. My dad was an avid fisherman. I never took to fly fishing, but I enjoy fishing very much. And I actually enjoy just as much watching people fish. I know it's a weird thing, but it just brings tranquility to my life and I enjoy it. But I never took to fly fishing and my dad used to make flies and loved it and was really loved it. But I never took to it. But as I got older, I understood the fascination to it. And you see it with actors also, people that are insanely passionate about certain things. It could be a race car driver, other things. There are several of them. And what it is, is it's a form of meditation because when you're rolling, you can't think about anything else. Like actors can do it and they take themselves out of the realm and the physical being of being in that moment. And they go into this other dimension. And that's what BJJ does. Like when you're mm-hmm. rolling with another individual, you can't think about anything else. Everybody that's ever done BJJ, one of the things that I do is called the happy pill, where I yes. just try to give as much knowledge away as possible just to help people. Like I know, listen, not everybody has the money to buy a DVD. And even those DVDs, there's a lot of them that are great, but they're individual moves. But there's no understanding of how they sequence together and the nuances of moves. Listen, buy DVDs. I'm never going to... I know there's a terminology to hate on others. I, I those Young men are out there trying to make a living. It's hard to make a living in BJJ. It really is. Few and far between. It's almost like the UFC. Yeah, I know there's a roster of 550 and about 35 of them will be able to retire with money. And that cycle just keeps rotating. Most they retire, they don't have any money. Let's get, so yeah. it's very difficult to make money in BJJ. Not everybody wor- works, you know, teaches classes in you know LA and Beverly Hills where they can charge like this high premium for a private lesson. It's not like that. Yeah. So you know those young men that are selling DVDs and working hard to spread knowledge, I compliment it. And I always recommend like you know, even let throw if you have access, maybe you want to support them in some manner. I'm always complimentary of that. But going back to your question about the fascination with it, I think that that's one of them. Though several of them, right? That thing about the zoning out and like everybody's been yeah. there. Like you literally, walk out of BJJ and you have a million problems, a million things on your plate, yeah. and you walk out of BJJ and you go, "Wow, what was I even worried yeah. about?" <laughs> I don't think there's person that has an experience that it's the beauty of the art the other thing i feel is uh one of the things that i see and, and i've observed with the military guys is that when they leave the military one of their biggest problems is they leave that tribe like they had this support group right. of buddies and and this bond with these individuals that they fight with every day. They eat with every day. And there's this deep connection and bond. And BJJ gives that back to them. And even if we're not in the military, you know this, I bet some of your best friends, like the guy are in a problem. When you're on the mat, he's trying to take your head off. Yeah. And when you get off the mat, if you had a problem, look to your right, he's on your right, look to your left, the other buddy's on the left, like, everybody goes through hardships, hard times, like, the connections and bonds that you make with these people, like, because there's also this factor that, you know, if I go into the workforce, I can't walk one foot up in front of you and have my lips one inch from you. You'll go, whoa, back up, buddy, you're invading my space. Like, in BJJ, we do that every day. Yeah. It's like, it's like It's the norm, and if I didn't have my lips about an inch away from yours and my head wedged up against your ear, I would tell you, and you would tell me, Mike, you're playing too loose, you gotta play (laughs) tight. So there are just so many of these little factors that add up and we can, maybe one of them might be 10% more for the other one, and the spirituality and meditation might be something more for for another guy. All personalities are different, they're all different. Mm -hmm. In some manner, somehow this accumulates with each individual and you see it. It's like, I have so many friends. We have this joke that we go another one that BJJ ruined his life. And it's a running <laughs> joke because yeah. the guy, he will literally have this promotion to become vice president and he'll go, but that'll interfere with my BJJ training. I yeah. can't take that. I can't take that promotion. Oh, yeah. I, I can't do that. Like I, we have so many friends that are, you know, NYPD, and they've been offered, like, these really high positions, and like, uh uh-uh, I can't do that, except my training, and I love it, because at the end of the day, monetary things, possessions, those things mean nothing if you're not happy, so I kid around when I say it, BJJ ruins lives also, but I don't mean it at all. I mean, that at the end of the day, happiness is what you're trying to achieve. All the other things are things that society told you that are important, the white picket fence, the two cars, like they might be important to you, but always that self-analyze and go, what really makes me happy? And that's the most important thing in life.
0: Yeah. That's totally true. I mean, like as a student coming, I started in 2004 in a place I was going was like 125 a month. And you're like, for 125 a month, this is my therapy. If I get cut off in traffic or I have all these woes afterwards with different heavy things through life, whether it was people come out of military or a loss in the family, the mats are always there for you. It's an invaluable thing. Whatever your local thing is, it obviously keeps the doors open, 125 month, 150 month, whatever that is. In my mind, that's nothing compared to what you get back.
1: Hey, Tom, I, I always love hearing the story of how everybody starts. Could you tell me how you started?
0: Oh, sure. Yeah around 2004 i was a professional musician and you know what? i was a guitarist like rock hard rock kind of stuff okay and we we're touring around quite a bit and there's a couple of altercations because every night to them is they're hammered and <laughs> they're partying out there and stuff yeah. so there's a couple yeah. altercations that happen where i just realized hey i know i don't want to get hurt and i don't want my friends to get hurt and i don't want to hurt somebody else and have that on my not just legalities but on my conscience and i just realized oh i don't have control and and that's what, to me, jiu-jitsu provided for. I summed jujitsu up personally to one word is control. You can make it more hardcore, lighter. So I saw it out, and I think the first season of Ultimate Fighter was out. And I saw him training, and I go, hey, you know, I'm in Illinois. So closest place was Carlson Gracie Sr. back when he was around. I got to start there. I actually kind of ran into Stefan Bonner, who was on the first season. I'm like, oh, I guess I'm at the right place. This is where people are training. So that's how I started. I just had the awareness through those altercations, like, hey, I know I don't want to get hurt, but I don't want to hurt someone yeah. else. And if I need to, I could, but the control factor, that was it for me.
1: It, Tom, isn't it funny? Because I think probably 99% of the people that start PJJ started to learn a self-defense Yeah, and who yeah. goes down this path. And later on, when you're 20 years in, you're like, I don't even want to ever have a fight. I yeah. just love but yet it revolves around fighting 1 million percent. <laughs> yeah. That's the crazy thing. Yeah, I've coached a lot of UFC, Bellator, World Series of Fighting now, it's is PFL. Coached a lot of them. And uh, I always found it funny that they're some of the toughest guys, like literally the t- toughest guy. I mean, really good fighters. But a bunch of them are high-level guys still fighting. And uh, none of them ever want to have an altercation in the street. No. Meanwhile, the insecure guy is the first guy to go... Hey buddy, you yeah. want to be me? And meanwhile, at one time I had the light heavyweight champ in Bellator, Liam McGreevy. He's a great guy, awesome, awesome guy. Now retired, living in Hawaii. And we were in Ireland, and I forgot what part of it, the wherever Game of Thrones is filmed. And there was this altercation that almost kicked off, and the guy's insulting him. And Liam so calmly is like, "Mate, relax. It's going to be fine." Like, and I'm thinking, about, "Do you know who you're talking to?" <laughs> This guy's got hands of stone, like, but I, yeah. I just find it so beautiful, like yes. what it does for the psyche and your self-confidence and your drive. So many good things come from it. I yeah. recently said on something that if somebody has the opportunity, uh, you can't push the children to do it. But if you can bring your child to a form of wrestling, judo, in a really positive, good environment, BJJ, like just instills this amazing drive and work ethic. And it's really yeah. good.
0: And it permeates to their life, everyday other activities. And I love that too, because yeah, I yeah, you do see a lot of students, especially kids. So you want to start for the self-defense. I start because self-defense, but what keeps you is you fall in love with it and the, yeah. the science behind it, the human chess, as they say of it, and just good people. I you don't really see a lot of you know meathead kind of vibes, it's very cerebral
1: very cerebral uh, maybe yeah if you go into you go into the Henry Gracie Academy obviously people know that I'm John Danaher's student and stuff but you go in there probably I taught this morning it had to be plus maybe over a hundred people it's just ridiculously crowded wow. and some of the most successful people you'll ever meet I mean guys that own law firm neurosurge I'm just and it, it's not by accident it's just not by accident. When you say it's like a very cerebral, it really is. It's just beautiful art. Yeah, very beautiful.
0: And the language of it. Like you've seen guys, right? That like, this guy's from Japan. This guy's from Brazil. This guy's from, you know, we may not speak the same language, but we speak the same jujitsu language, so to speak. And there's a bond even there. Yeah, there is.
1: Yeah. Tell me, sir, what are you working on on the mat now? Are you a gi player, non-gi player? You know, over the years, I've
0: developed more of a love for gi, just the technicality of it, all the lapel tail work. And also we do sambo and judo. So I love that aspect. Of course, I mean, but I love no-gi just as much. And and I'll also do crappy t-shirt day, So we all wear, you know, like oh, a t-shirt cool. you won't miss. And we'll do like our, our no-gi with gi grips and stuff. And that's I, cool. yeah, you know, mix it up. And so, yeah, I try to work on that more. But over the years, I do so much gi. And I started doing no-gi more again. And I'm going for grips that aren't there. and <laughs> So a nice blend of both. I'm affiliated under Vlad Kulakov. He's a master of sport in Sambo, black belt in jiu-jitsu and judo, phenomenal guy. Up My training up to 2010, I had zero takedowns, zero defense as well there. Even competition, right? You started on feet and I had also had like zero leg lock, not just attacks, but defense and, you know, yeah. the whole don't ignore 50% of the body concept, but that just opened my pathways. I felt more and more.
1: That's awesome. Yeah, It's just a beautiful. You never stop learning.
0: It's not. There's always more, or, or just setups, right? There's only so many positions, and some missions, and so on and so forth. But right, there's variations and setups that you can keep going on and on. Everybody
1: moves different. Every reaction is different. Every strength level, body angle, flexibility, and you're trying to read this equation as it's being thrown at you, in these quarter seconds, and your mind has to recalculate, rebalance, turn left, and readjust. And it's a fun game.
0: So what was your, in a nutshell, coming up through the ranks, so to speak, like your first year, did it come naturally to you? And then like working your way all the way up through the belts to Black Belt and beyond, like, what has your path been like?
1: I got really lucky. And it's funny, I was thinking about this today. Is it so ironic that, you know, I was just white belt. I just joined and I look over. I actually remember, I remember that day. It just, uh, there's certain things that happen in your life. You just don't forget. I remember looking to my left. And John Danaher had showed me a Kamora, and like the day before he showed me how to do it. But then he told me, when you roll with that guy, do this. Yeah, I don't think Johnny will never remember this. This guy <laughs> actually funny coincidence. Years later, he fights in Bellator, but I catch him in a Kimura. I didn't know what a Kimura was. I didn't even know the name of it, but he showed me how to do it and finished the guy. John was a student. I was a student, but I wasn't. We were not not peers. Like Johnny has always been my teacher. Mm-hmm. and. He said to me, come over here, kid. And I walked over there and he said, good job. He said, next time also do this. And that's how the relationship started. He would constantly just say, next time do this. And he would show me. And it's funny, this is uh, pretty true. He'll even tell you this. There were these guys who were kind of like out there, you know, it was early days of the game and you'd get a lot of guys who were just a little bit mentally uh, kind of out there. <laughs> and Johnny started teaching me and then, I was really taking apart the room off of his teachings. Like I didn't know anything. And he would just tell me, do this, do this, do this. And I would just, I never questioned. I always just went, okay, understood. And I would go and whatever he showed me, I would just try that day no matter what. And I would just keep doing it and doing it and doing it. And then people started doing privates with him. At that time, he was working as a bouncer at the Crane Club and a few other clubs. And he was also teaching at Columbia University and he was doing his PhD. And then people started hiring him to do privates to stop me. And uh, and then, but he would, I, it was funny because it became like this test, huh. they would stop me. And then I'd go back to him and go, honey, <laughs> they, they did this. And he'd go, next time, do this. And uh, that's how it, it evolved. And then that started in 1998, our friendships. Gone, and he promoted yeah. me through. The belts, I probably, or I forget what year it is now, but maybe around 2000 or 2001, the previous group of teachers left Henzo. Ricardo Almeida, Nick Sarah, Sean Williams, and Matt Sarah, of course. Matt Sarah and Rodrigo went to Long Island, New York, and opened a school. Nick Sarah followed them out there. Ricardo went to New Jersey. And then that's when that next generation of teachers came in, and Sean Williams teaching and then johnny started teaching so wherever johnny was he was the one teaching me so i would constantly go to all of his classes and he was really very very special with me very very special and i i went through the belt ranks and in 2005 i was his first black belt i was shocked to get it i tell this story this is a weird story is that probably like Remember, I was telling you the thing about the privates. There was a gentleman, his name is Larry Betts. I think he lives in Arizona. If he ever watches this, shout out to him. I haven't seen him in years. But Larry Betts came to me and he said, hey, why don't we pay Johnny and we'll ask him a lot of questions and do private lessons with him? And I said, are you serious? He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I said, how much you want to pay him? He goes, how about we each give him 20 bucks? And I, uh-huh. I didn't now johnny makes, johnny makes millions right <laughs> but it was 20 bucks so we each gave him 20 dollars, and we started doing privates after class there were no morning classes at henzo's you could only train at two places in new york city that was mm-hmm. henzo great fabio clementes and there were two classes at henzo's now there's literally like henzo's is probably one of the biggest bjj schools you can go to it's three floors and then even in the downstairs has even two rooms it's a very big place You can only go to two places. And then, so probably around 2000 or something like that, he started teaching us. And there were only two classes you could do. This wasn't at this academy. It was at the previous academy, the small one. And you could go in the afternoon and it was a 1230 to two o'clock class, or you could go at night. The only two classes you go at nighttime, Hensel taught. So I would go to the 1230 class. It would go to two o'clock and then our private would start. And that private would last three and a half hours it was just insane. Knowledge. Johnny's like an walking encyclopedia of BJJ, yeah. MMA. Just, people just think BJJ. No, no, no. Ask him about judo, right? Ask him about planes. Like <laughs> it sounds funny, but yeah. ask about planes. He's probably the most knowledgeable person on the aircraft that you'll find, other than somebody that like literally works in the industry. And that's just one thing that ask him about swords. Like everybody knows Johnny gives out swords as a form of gratitude and as a form of, a, I don't want to say reward, I don't know, but accolades of like success. Like his knowledge on swords is just, I mean, just, he could probably speak professionally about them. But reason I bring it up is his knowledge is so deep. And you want to talk about Muay Thai, you want to talk about Sambo. He probably knows more, not just the physical moves, but the history and who you're Like just his level of knowledge is insane. He's just insane. So those privates would last about three and a half hours until that guy, that guy, Larry, that I mentioned, he lived pretty far. He lived about an hour and a half away from the Academy. So he would have to give up. He would have to go, guys, I got to stop. I got two kids at home. Like he had to leave. <laughs> so that's how it started. And in 2005, he gave me my black belt and I appreciate it. I'm in great, uh, eternally grateful to him. Back then, no one knew who he was. It's just ironic that he yeah. became famous. And then it became its so ironic that he became so famous. And I'm the guy that took over. Like, what's the coincidence on that? So, <laughs> but I got to see the young men grow up. I'm super proud of them. Gordon Ryan and Nicky. I know they had some beefs and they're broken up and stuff. But like Gary, I'll tell a quick story about Gary. Yeah. Yeah, I never told people know Gary Tonin, but I've never told anybody the story. I told people at Henzo's they know the story. I think it must have been about 2008 or something like that. I have a dear friend, his name's Carl Provic. They call him. He has uh, most people know him as Silver Fox. He has a big following on Instagram. Oh, I've heard and, of him. Yeah, yeah, Carl's a really great guy, an exceptional teacher, world class. Carl and I, we used to travel together to the worlds and stuff and competing on Sunday. It was the last day. You know, Everybody goes and gets an acai. I went to go get the yeah. acai. Yeah. I'm coming back and I sit in my chair and I just want to watch BJJ. You know, I just want to have a good time and watch. If everybody knows the pyramid, it's kind of oval shaped. And I was all the way on the right side. For whatever reason, I can follow patterns kind of well. BJJ, for whatever reason, if I see something, I'm able to regurgitate it and to tell you exactly what happened. So- When I sat there, out of the corner of my eye, I was all the way at the end ring. And in the corner of my eye, I saw some movement. And I turned and I saw this young man flying all over the place. I think it was the Blue Belt Division. Might've been the Purple, but I can't remember now. And he's flying all over the place. And I went, who is that kid? I got up with my acais and I made my way all the way over to the other stand to watch him move. And I watched all his matches and I thought to myself, that young man has superstar potential. I think he was a blue belt, it's funny. And so after the whole event's over, Carl comes up to me, I don't even, Carl remembers this, if you ever interview him, he's a great guy. And he goes, hey, I want you to meet this young man. And I go, who? And he goes, just come in case with his mom. I goes, I really want him to meet you. He's really a good kid. And I go, yeah, let's go. And we go into the locker room, it's Gary Tonin and his mother. And I go, hey, nice to meet you. My name is Mike Jaramillo. And he goes, hey, I'm Gary. And I, go, I shake his hand, very nice young man. That's the first time I hear his name. I don't hear his name for about the year that Marcelo lost. Was it Drysdale that he got choked out yeah. at the in New Jersey? That particular ADC, I was thinking about doing it. And I was already getting up in my 30s. And I was like, ah, you know what? I'm not going to do this. Hmm. And I, I was kind of done. I didn't want to try to do anything like that. And I remember that particular day they were doing the trials, right? The American trials for who went. And I remember I wanted to call Carl. And I called him up and I said, hey, just a curiosity, man, who won the bracket? Because JT Torres was in that bracket. And now he started making a name for himself. Mm-hmm. And so I said, hey, did JT steam everybody? He goes, nah, man, he almost lost. And I go, against who? And he goes, man, this kid, it's a purple belt. I don't even know who he came from. And I go, what was his name? And he, he goes, his name's Gary Tone. <laughs> It's the second time, and Gary's a wonderful young man, he, Real wonderful. Anybody's anybody's ever seen a Paul Horace match? One oh, of the greatest man. matches you can. it'll give you goosebumps. It's yeah. David against Goliath. I'm sure he's much more successes in his future on and off the mat. So shout out to him.
0: A lot of change has happened in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. You know, not just the art, but the sport itself. I believe you had one interview, too, where we were talking about the Gi... And not allowing heel hooks and how kind of ridiculous it is. And can you kind of go into your thoughts on old school jujitsu versus modern as far as competition mindset goes, whether it's rules or how you've seen it change the most?
1: I always find that argument funny because I understand this is the argument usually, right? They'll go, uh, why do we have to wear this gi top and the gi bottom? And then the argument becomes, because in the street they wear clothes. I go, oh, okay. That's a legitimate argument. Yeah. Then they say, why can't you reap? And you go, because of the vulnerability of the knee, and if I caught him in a heel hook, like pretty much, not I'm not gonna say can't get out, but it's Mm -hmm. very difficult with fabric against fabric. Mm -hmm. Most of those escapes that you see happen in in high-level play with the legs, it's because you're wet and I'm wet. Mm -hmm. And now there's a slippiness and you know there's some movement. It's not the same. Uh if we had fabric to fabric. A lot of those heels before you got out would pop, right? You'd have ACL tears out of the kazoo. But then I say to the argument, but you told me that you wear a top, right? And then if you could not reap and a gentleman was on top of you, like, I thought we were learning the game in some form of self-defense. What do you think is going to happen with that fist? They're going to come raining down on you. So now you're not even understanding how to reap right you're not understanding how to throw the leg over and buck the kneecap so you make them look away Mm -hmm. so there's this argument that i feel like eh. and to be honest with you um because we are so dominant we do both at the main academies like there's just as many geek classes as no classes right but i've never seen an academy have more people on the mat at one time like you come to my class and there's always Uh welcome Oh, anybody in New York City, please stop by 224 West 30th between 7th and 8th. We're a block away from Madison Square Garden. Literally, it's an awesome place. Like stop in. I love BJJ. I love spreading it. I love the brotherhood. And that's how I feel about anybody that comes in. So nobody's ever gonna get targeted. I always ask somebody, what's your level? Like what kind of, how hard you looking roll. And I know everybody in the room. I know everybody's skill. I watch. To me, I don't watch TV. I hate watching TV. Yeah. I can't focus. But if you put me on a mat, I can watch rolling all day long. That's how I feel about fishing, like all day. Yeah. And so I know all my kids' tendencies. I know which one likes to invert, which one likes to turn left, which one. So I compare a person and go, what's your skill level? What do you like to do? I literally fit them with the right people. So Going back to the thing about what I was saying about the reaping or the heel hooks, I literally have probably, I probably see about 200 reaps in every morning class. We do six rounds. They're all between six and eight minutes. And that's so many times we probably see 400 reaps. I'd never have anybody's knee pop. I've seen multiple knees explode. Not a lot, probably three in the last 10 years where somebody jumped guard and jumped too far away. And landed on the knee and the leg went backwards. And one guy literally every single thing in his kneecaps came apart. Oh. Even his hamstring curled up into his glute. I made a running joke with him. I told him that I said, Man, your ass looks great. You should put a wallet on the other one to even it out. Like just to humor him <laughs> a little bit. We're good. <laughs> wives are good friends, like, but just like, you know, relieve his little bit of tension and stuff. But so I do believe reaping should be allowed. I'm a little bit worried about incorporating heel hooks with geese, but the, one of the things that older men have or somebody that's been in the gi for too long is their foot placements start to not be real. Mm-hmm. And that's when they transfer over to no-gi. is like, you're off. Like, nobody takes the leg. You give them the leg. Like, in high-level play, everybody is feeding off of the other man's reaction. Yeah. If you're in trying to impose your move, and early on you will, like early on you have a limited skill set, and you don't have too deep a knowledge of the game. And then you know you grab a leg and you're trying to crab, you're trying to take this, later on it's like, all I did was beat an angle and I, and I fed off your reactions. And each one of your reactions, I feed off of that reaction. So I'm looking to penetrate as deeply as I can, whether it be a leg, an arm bar, a pass, a reversal, doesn't make a difference. It's all based on reaction of man because the bigger man can dominate a smaller man with strength, but the little man has to use skill. Johnny had a great quote that I actually love. I saw it on a rash guard one time and they gave him the credit and they put his name. He said, technique is your sword and it really is back then when he used mm. to say it technique is your sword mike mr technique is your sword and i think to myself dude i'm not into knives <laughs> 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 but yeah but as you get all you go damn technique really is your sword yeah. so i usually show this on the happy pill stuff that i do yeah i'll explain like the reactions and the because that's how the game when it gets to the highest level is like you know there's moves that i call them like I usually, the kids in the cat, in the, I don't really call them kids, they're grown men, they're grown women. Um, there's some young kids also, but I usually say to them, that's not real. That's not real. That's not real. And they know this saying. Like, it's, I'm like, everybody makes fun of me for that saying, but- Because I teach advanced, I expect black belt to black belt moves. I don't expect a black belt to blue belt move. A lot of this, not all this stuff. There's a lot of good stuff on TikTok and Instagram. But a lot of the stuff that you see is one guy sitting still, not moving. And the other guy has five sequences to get to the submission. And they could be minor. He moves his right hand. Then he loops his left hand. He moves his left foot. I'm just making things up. But if you have five sequences and you look at that move and you go, what, that man was just going to stay still. He wasn't going to move. Like, did you give him a sleeping pill? Recently, Man says to me, "Uh, professor, I want to show you this thing I saw on Instagram. And it was, it was ghee based, like where he wrapped the belt around the guy's wrist and a whole bunch of wrappings and stuff. And I went, wow, what sleeping pill did you give him? And he was, what do you mean? And I go, really? Like what sleep? And, And he goes, what are you saying? I go, I go, how real is that? Like, so yeah. unless you can physically hold him with so much strength, you're going to wrap his hand with your belt. And then you're going to take a piece of his jacket and loop it through his glute. And yeah. I mean, just to your point, you go, are you serious? That's not real.
0: I need a quilt with this, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah. Like, come on. like what, Did you give him NyQuil with Benadryl and like, <laughs> I, like ambient? Like, this is not going to happen. So I get it. Just, I want to put in two points of this mm. is one is to the person about the legs, because if you get too dominant in gi, and I think he's good, I enjoy playing it. Try to be careful with all your positions, question everything, mm. understand when people say create a scramble, I hate that term because there's no such thing. Right. It's like everything has a detail and a, and a rhythm and a pattern. So question everything and be passionate about what you do. I think it resembles life very much.
0: You know, that's one of my favorite things about it with Brazilian jiu-jitsu specifically is how many other combative sports or martial arts or self-defense points can you go battle test it? You're both going pretty much 100% against each other, going for the technique, you know, at the end you just tap or whatnot. But that's a very special thing compared to other things. Can you kind of go into that aspect of training for guys to master techniques and apply it live?
1: Yeah, yeah, I do actually. Yeah, I try to cover a lot of the transitional points that happen at the highest level. I try to explain about every single reaction that you'll encounter. I've been on the mat 25 years. I told you before that I I kind of have this weird photographic memory of movement, but as you get older, you start to realize what you're good at and what you're not. And other things, I'm terrible in life on other things, but the most important thing a person can do is understand their mind. For whatever reason, I remember patterns really well when it comes to movement so i try to take my life experiences on the mat and explain to them. because over the years like i was john Danner's student and i was trying to spread his name and nobody knew his name and i was like i really wanted to dive so deep into this that i questioned everything i questioned like if i do this arm bar and i have two angles at it i want to know what he's doing with his even his toes at the other end. I want to know everything about his movements. I want to know more about what he does, not just random move. I want to know everything. I want to know where his left hand moves, his right hand moves, how his kneecap might move. I want to know everything because I always want to be set up for the next shot depending on what angles are coming at me. Mm -hmm. So I try my best to always, whatever I'm teaching, tell a larger story, not Mm just move so that a person understands all these nuances, all these reactions, all these transitional points that occur. So that's how I teach. I think if you mix those things with moves and I do show submissions, I go deep yeah. into the blood and blood supply and angles and leverage points. And yeah, I'm really crazy about this sport. Yeah. It consumes my life. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, you're such a high-end instructor and you've been doing this so long. You can literally take these different people at their different body types, their different game mentalities. In general, what are some of the biggest, most common mistakes in training people make to help prevent them from falling into those pitfalls?
1: Man, that, that's a difficult question in the sense that it that is a super generalized question. It
0: is. It is.
1: Yeah. You know, like if you, let's say you're playing bottom, if you're playing top and like a general, like you said to me, okay, what... Basically, like in the beginning, right? You say, uh, what are some pitfalls, right? Mm -hmm. I'll tell you, the the biggest pitfall is just letting this man touch you. Like you should be winning hand positions always, whether you're top or bottom. Somebody doesn't magically, telepathically elevate you. Mm. They grab you. So your first entry point, just like a wrestling, it's no different. Like when you're standing up, what is the guy doing? He's trying to grab onto your hands. He's trying to arm drag you. He's trying to grab you. So he grabs his collar, snap down. Like, so your first entry point should be that. Number two is, which I always see, this happens a lot. You should start understanding the concept of your contact points. And that's really, a, that usually is a huge thing. Mm. You have two feet, you have two hands. Right, and you have a head. You should have contact points at all points. You should never have a dead limb. People know that are in my room. That when they'll go, hey, professor, I have a lot of kids that compete, and they'll send me stuff. And people that don't even live in New York, um, they compete at a high level. They'll they'll send me footage and through WhatsApp, and then we'll review it and we'll timestamp it, and we'll go through the timestamping on it. And one match can literally be like two hours of timestamp. And there's a high level matches. These are like absolute black, like. Uh, and we'll go step by step and I'll go, okay, at 9.09, you had a dead limb on the left side. At 9.15, you let go of one grip and you only had a two-point grab. Like, so meaning what I mean by that is that if I explained in a very general manner that you have four contact points, you have two insteps, right? Or two insteps, or you could have two arches. Insteps could be transitioned to Delahivas, outside, inside. You could have two inside butterflies. So people start to understand what I mean by this. You have two hands, right? Later on, I'll describe a little bit more about this. But basically, if the guy's in butterflies, am I? Depending on his hand angles, I don't want to get too technical because the audience, will, I'll lose the audience on it. But um, in, a, in a generalized manner, I want to always have four contact points. I would love to win the head battle; that would be a fifth. But if I remove one, let's say I'm going on an arm drag, people will deaden a limb. If they go on an arm drag, they'll you'll go on an arm drag. And let's say my right hand was supposed to advance to his right elbow on an arm drag. That's what an arm drag would be, right? We're opposite of each other. They'll deaden one of their hooks. So you want to start learning. To, and this goes back to older people that are transitioning. They'll say to me, professor, I'm having a really hard time. Like the game is too fast. And I'll go, okay, show me. And then it'll be back to the thing with the gi is because the gi, you can cheat. You can grab this fabric, but when you start going high level, no gi or like these guys slicing and cutting and going lateral and, you know, like they're just so many things are happening. I have to slow down the game. And now if you learn how to do this and then go back to gi, I have this happen all the time with older gentlemen. They'll go back. They'll come to the class. They'll get the courage to come in. They'll start learning the no gee game, but with a deep technical aspect of it, deep, crazy deep. And then they'll go back to gee and they'll go, "My God, I feel like I'm dealing with children. This is (laughs) this is child's play." But sometimes early on, listen, just learn the game. So when you ask that question about what are some of the bad habits or pitfalls that people occur, that's usually one of the biggest ones. Wow. That's one of the biggest That's a ones. big
0: takeaway for anybody listening, yeah. for sure.
1: Yeah, that's a big one. And then the other thing on the pitfalls is, so you learn this move, like let's I just stand a BJJ 101, deep half guard reversal. I don't care which one you do, there's several, right? Is going back to what I said earlier, about 10 minutes ago, is understanding Every which way that guy can move. I'll tell this quick story. One time I went to go watch this guy play pool. He was a friend of a friend. I'm not a pool player, billiards people. I don't mean like a pool pool. I mean billiards pool, right? And uh, I went and the guy had a pool table. He's a professional pool player. And I went, my friend likes pool. And we said, hey, come on, let's go over at My friend has his place. And I went over there. And I watched this guy run the table seven times in a row. And I went, wow. I said, wow. And every once in a while, it's like bowling with me. Once in a blue moon, I go bowling. After two games, I'm bored out of my mind. That's how I feel about pool. I'm not a billiards player. But I thought to myself, I want to ask this guy a couple of questions. I'm always fascinated, right? And I said, hey, let me ask you this question. You got any tips? I said, like, I would love to play at a higher level. I'm not very good. And I thought the guy was going to tell me how to, like, hold the cue stick, where to hit the ball. I thought he was going to tell me how to put my fingers, how deep I should put my back hand on the stick. It wasn't anything about that. He said, it's about understanding what your second and third shots are. I never look at the first shot. And I didn't think that that was what he was going to say. And I went, really? And he said, yeah, at the highest level, I'm not even looking at ball number one and two. I'm looking at how do I sink ball five, six, and seven? That's actually why like a guy like, I think Hafa Mendes is the best player to play the game because his mind sequenced so deep on the chain that And I don't want to get off topic for a second, but okay. if I use that analogy, and I always say that BJJ resembles life. They mirror each other. Hensel Weinstein told me, one day you'll look at life through BJJ eyes. And I was like, I I was so young in my career and I was like, I didn't understand what he meant. I do, I look at everything through BJJ eyes where I reflect back on life and BJJ, they mirror each other. And if I told you that story, you asked me this question, what are some of the pitfalls? Now I'm gonna relate that story to this. If you were in a deep half guard set and the instructor told you, there are three things that are critical. You gotta grab his hip, you gotta put your feet here and you have to shift your body. Those three things that you have to do. I'm going to ask you, what if he didn't have his position there and he was leveraged a little bit further back? How would you react? Because you couldn't do that exact sequence the same. You have to have a second shot. You have to have the safety valve to either escape or attack on another angle. Mm. And what if he was higher, but this time, let's say hypothetically, just assumption, he grabbed my head now that move is a little bit different because within four inches, the move changes. Three to four, you have a totally different move. So if he moved a little bit further, what would be my safety valve to either escape or attack at a different angle? And that's how you want to look at the game. Very similar to what that pool player said. He's not just looking at that first shot. So some of the pitfalls that'll happen is early in your career, you're taught a move and you never think about the other guy. You never think that like, what if I did go deep half guard, but he leveraged himself so far back on me? Do I have my inside leg ready to go to his hip? What if he wizard me? Could I have progressed to attack the top quadrant? Would I have the angle to maybe go into a dog fight? Like all these things are things you have to ask yourself because you never want to get stuck. You want to have, second shot, a third shot. And that's the beauty. Earlier when I told you about sequencing, about maybe 20 to 30 minutes ago, I was speaking at the highest level. It's about read and reaction, read and reaction, read and reaction. That's the difference between the exceptional, the great, the world-class. After you've been on the mat for 25 years, you know all the moves, if you've studied the game, you bought DVDs, you watch YouTube, you, and you've been on the mat and you've been a student of the game, you know the moves. I'm not going to trick you with some unknown. You might see something, a new nuance, but the essence of the game, you'll know. And what's the difference between them? It's to be read and reaction, read and reaction. And the faster you can read and react, And there's other factors like stories about what's the difference between Gordon Lyon and Nicky Rodriguez, like Nicky Rodriguez should be in the NFL like that guy's (laughs) an incredible athlete. Yeah. If you've never been next to Nick Rodriguez, that young man is six foot four, 220. Somebody directs him a little bit different. And when he was younger, I think he'd be in the NFL playing tight end. Like he's that type of athlete. Most kids that are in the NFL playing offensive lineman, defense. Somebody saw something and realized, like, no kid, you got the potential to make either go to a high level college for free, or you got the potential to make several million dollars in a professional fight league, uh, professional league. Gordon wouldn't have done that. Gordon is not an A plus athlete. He'll be the first to admit it. That's no, but his worth ethic is unparalleled that young man. I, I don't wanna get into the stories about him, but his work ethic is unparalleled. There's nobody that stands on, forget about titles. That young man's work ethic and devotion. He writes a lot of stuff on social media and all this. Thing. No one saw what that man did when the lights were off. Everybody just sees him standing. No one saw that. No one saw the hours and the hours him and his brother would sit there on the mat, get there at 6.30 in the morning, not go home till late in the afternoon. Hours and hours and hours, man. So when I go back to about that, it's like about him and the attachment. is like really going deep. If you love the game, deep dive. It's a yeah. fascinating game. Yeah. It really is. It's human chess. On, and the deeper you go, like people say to me about chess, and they go, man, chess is hard. And I go, I think my thing is harder. And they'll go, get out. <laughs> and chess, like when I go, my pieces move. Like, <laughs> have to move your my pieces are moving quarter second speeds like that i have to read and react read and react read and react and nothing's linear like i think bruce lee was like whatever like there's something about water i don't know his quote but yeah, yeah. real like right the game is so beautiful to watch when it's nothing imposed and everything is a reaction off of another person that's when it's like wow like for me, it's like when I see some of the, I have these young men that are, I don't know which ones will compete long-term, but I'm teaching them the game in that manner. It's just beautiful to watch them perform. Forget about the submission. Their sequencing is so beautiful. You're just, man, he's getting it. Um, so that's my answer to it. Wow. I know it was all over the place, but.
0: Oh, it was fantastic because that insight and not just people listen; it's not just Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, other martial arts, other sports as well, but anybody could take that away and use that. Man, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Like such great insight and everything.
1: Thank you very much. You have a great day, Tom. Thanks for listening, everyone. Hope you enjoyed
0: this episode of the Warriors Edge Podcast. For more great talks and interviews on all things martial arts, be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And if you're ever in our area, you're welcome to come in and train with us at our Academy Olympus Grappling Arts. Until the next one, keep listening and keep training.